This episode, you meet Janelle McCauley. She's a 98 grad who uh, uh, became a pilot on active duty, flew C-121 or C-21s, C-130s, KC-10s. This was after getting her master's degree in kinesiology at Penn State University. Uh, she was on the cheer squad for a little while at Air Force, uh, got injured and uh, became a rugby player. So the injury wasn't that bad, I guess. Uh, also was an uh, instructor IP in soaring. Uh, she was so impressive in biology that they they let her go off to Penn State upon graduation. After her while her, while she was doing her flying career and, and in the middle of her Air Force career, she uh, became a, uh, a special consultant to special operations folks. And as you learn her story, you're going to figure out why all this is. Uh, people have been very interested in her topics and her uh, her capabilities. She got her uh, doctor's degree at the the Air University and military. Str- Strategy and Human Performance. Uh, that got the attention of some folks to where she was allowed to give a TED Talk in Albuquerque. And uh, that got picked up by somebody called Pete Carroll of the Seattle Seahawks. So I, th- I know you're going to enjoy this one. Hi, I made it. Thank, thanks for doing this. Thanks for being part of this uh, experiment. Um, I always like to start by asking you what kind of message you have for the uh, the incoming class, the current cadets, the recent grads, and then the old the old characters like me. <laughs> That's a, a wide audience I know, that you I just know. gave me there. <laughs> um, t- to be honest, I think whether you're starting, you know, your journey at the academy now, or you've gone through that experience and you're in your military career, or even like post retirement. Um, you know, one of the biggest skill sets and, and takeaways that I've learned over the years is this, that the value in creating space to live more of your life on the play button. And what I mean by that is, you know, our minds are fantastic at mental time travel and we spend a lot of time thinking and fast forward. And most of the time, instead of thinking productively about the future, we start catastrophizing, especially (laughs) if we're facing adversity or we're under stress. And we create all these what if scenarios inside our heads about what could possibly go wrong tomorrow. Or maybe we have a big event coming up in three days. And then the three days leading up to it, we're going to constantly play out you know, the scenario for that event in our heads. And most of the time it's from a stressful place. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in fast forward and then we also spend a lot of time in rewind. And instead of productively self-reflecting, we spend time in our heads thinking about, you know, ruminating over past experiences and regretting and um, worrying about things. And so my biggest piece of mentorship that I would love to add to anyone, you know, no matter your age, it's never too early or too late to start embracing the power of your breath and the power of living on the play button and creating space in your day um, to integrate that into your overall life. That's very cool. That that's very similar to a lesson I learned in the, in the, in the flying world where when an emergency would pop up in your airplane, one of the guys, one of the instructors, and it worked really well. He said, before you do anything, just wind wind the clock. We had a little manual clocks on the mm-hmm. desk because you have to calm down and think through what's really happening. What the, what are the secondary indications? What don't get too far ahead and don't look too far in the path and pay attention to what's going on right now. Absolutely, we spend a lot of time. At least I know in my career, and so this is for like the younger folks that listen. You know, I spent a lot of my military life 
you know, as a mother and a spouse and, you know, a high performer, combat veteran and pilot, you know, when I was at home, I was worried and thinking about all the things I was messing up at work or all the things I needed to do at work. And then when I was <laughs> at work, Away I from think, right? Like I would think about all the things that I was struggling with at home or I wasn't being the best mom or, and so what really I'm asking people to do is live where your feet are planted. And when you learn that skill, it really pays dividends in all aspects of your life. Cool. So that kind of leads me to the next question that is where'd you grow up and why'd you go to the academy great question so i grew up in southern california in a family full of marines which is Uh-oh. why i went to the air force academy <laughs> <laughs> um and all uh, like all joking aside i i grew up in a family of public servants both my grandfathers served in the marines my uncle was a helicopter pilot in fact he flew marine one for president reagan back in the 80s and used to take me to all the air shows um, and you know, my dad was a police officer. My mom was a nurse. So public service, I think was just something I was destined to do in my life and had a calling for. Um, I do remember my uncle coming back from a deployment he had done, you know, the first Gulf war as well as Somalia. And I had expressed interest in flying airplanes and going into the military. And I remember him coming back and saying, well, let me just put it to you this way. Like the army sleeps in tents and <laughs> the Navy and Marines are hot bunking it on ships and the air force always managed to have like air conditioned billets when we deployed. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he was like, you know, make your choice. And, and that plus the, the combination of, you know, the kind of aircraft I wanted to fly and what I want was um, envisioning for myself in the future just led me toward the air force academy. And so, um, how easy was it for you to get in? Well, it wasn't so easy because I had childhood asthma and that came up on some of my applications and I had to go through a lot of stressful, um, appointments and a process in order to kind of say, Hey, I've grown out of that. It's not a problem now. And I'll be fine at the Academy. So, you know, like the mechanics of the application process were a bit stressful for my family and I at the time, but, you know, going to the other side of that, um, you know, and, and getting it to the Academy, um, I was just very grateful to have, you know, navigated those waters that were of a lot of uncertainty during the process. Cause it was, it wasn't. Um, and I think there are a lot of young people today who, you know, it's not the grades, it's not their scores, it's not their athletics. Like they can get into the Academy and maybe there's just one little medical thing, (laughs) right. That, that holds up your whole application. So I definitely feel for them because it's not an easy process. Yeah, well, then that process hasn't changed. It's been it's been a little tricky all along. We've got some great stories on these series about guys having to deal with eye things or height things or or whatever. I couldn't figure out mine. I had a refractive error, so I ended up uh, not going into pilot training. Um, oh wow! So you, so if I'm reading this, okay, I, I need to ask you the big question. So you show up your first summer. How, how did how was freshman year for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is a story. I do a lot of podcasts with the work that I do today, you know, sharing mindset, high performance mindset and um, high performance work within the military and, and different communities. But this is a story I have actually never told on a podcast. So this Uh-oh. will be a first. So my freshman year at the academy was very unique because – 
I actually broke my femur and my right leg three days after basic training ended my freshman year. So I had a very challenging um, basic year because I spent the first two months living in the hospital, actually. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and trying to take my classes from there. And then I spent about three months on crutches. And then I've always been the type of person who just – won't take no for an answer. If someone says, Hey, you broke your femur, you know, the biggest bone in your body. I had a metal rod and screws put in my legs so that I could, you know, get back up on my feet as quickly as possible. But I was told, you know, you're never going to really be a runner. You're never going to be able to do like gymnastics again. I actually was a cheerleader at the academy and I was at cheerleading practice when I broke my femur. Wow. Um, yeah. So just a, a, a lot of like different circumstances that would have led a lot of people to say, well, then I'm just going to quit the academy or this isn't for me. I'm going to take a different direction. I'm, you know, not going to fly airplanes. They weren't going to let me fly with all the metal in my leg. So I had to get it all taken out, um, before I graduated. Um, so yeah, so I've just been a very determined individual where this is my goal. This is what I want to get to. So just tell me what I need to do to, to check the boxes and, um, achieve, um, you know, the end goal. So yeah. So despite breaking my femur, despite being told I would not fly airplanes or run again, I've definitely done both, um, and excelled in those areas. Um, so if you, if there's anybody on there that's facing setbacks, like they don't have to define you. And I remember thinking I could let these doctors write my narrative or I could write it myself. And that was super powerful for me. And, you know, the grit that was required to, to change, um, my future at that point. Oh, no, that, that, yeah. uh, (laughs) So I also saw somewhere in in your bio that you played rugby. I did. See, I went from (laughs) broken broken femur and cheerleader to yeah, rugby player and then eventual pilot. Yeah. No, I did (laughs) play rugby for a year. It was, I think, you know, just I'm one to try to get as many different experiences as I can. How much, and, pain, can, you, how much pain can you take? Right, right. <laughs> like challenge myself, push the boundaries, see what I'm capable of. And playing rugby was definitely something that did that for me. So what position? I was a wing. Okay, I, so was, I was fast. fast. I was not big. <laughs> And so if they caught me, it, I was in trouble, but otherwise like I could be pretty fast with the ball. Yeah. I, I actually played uh, at the Academy in the seven in the, in the intramurals we had. And then I also played when I was in Pensacola and I played in grad school. So I was at one time I was older than a coach in, in the rugby club in, at oh, UW, awesome. University of Washington. Yeah. So I, I enjoy the sport. That's, and it's not as brutal as people think. It 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 can be rough, but you don't use your body as a weapon. So just relax when you're watching on the sidelines. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I think I also saw you became an IP in soaring, even though they said you couldn't fly with a broken leg. I did. Yes, I did become a soaring IP. I just really was inspired the first time I flew and like you know, the yellow gliders, they have fancy programs now, but, um, those big yellow, uh, gliders we flew were so fun. And I just really loved being up in the air and like, I felt like peaceful and challenging and fun all wrapped into the same space. And so, uh, I did, I, and that's actually why I quit the cheerleading team is because I, 
the coach at the time was not very um, agreeable to her cheerleaders doing things other than that <laughs> one focus sport. So I said, well, this is for the rest of my life, you know, being a soaring IP and learning this skill set. And so, yeah, that's kind of how that happened. And then I saw you got your, you, somewhere you announced you got your degree in biology. Was that a function of the hospital stay? Yeah. So having been told all those things by the doctors, like you'll never do all these, you know, activities, you'll never bend your leg a certain way or whatever it happened to be. Like my physical therapists were unbelievably amazing and helped me, you know, break through those barriers and get to the other side of them and really believe in myself and my capabilities. And so that really inspired me to, um, become a biology major because I wanted to potentially go to med school, even though I had originally thought I was going to be a pilot. <laughs> I kind of got this inspiration that, well, I want to be a doctor too. Yeah. And so how can I make this all happen? And, um, this is also some of the mentorship I give to young people today is, you know, you would rather have more options than, and then you get to choose your path instead of like either putting all your eggs in one basket or, you know, not applying for multiple opportunities. So then you're only stuck with like one pathway forward. Um, and so I did that throughout my Air, my Air, Air Force Academy career is that when I was graduating, I had applied for pilot training and I actually got a Euronado slot and I had applied for um, not medical school, but for physical therapy school. Yeah. Um, at Baylor. And I actually was accepted into that program. And then I also applied for graduate school, like the graduate scholarship program for the biology department. And um, I got accepted to for that scholarship. So then I had choices, right, like of yeah. where I wanted to go. And I kind of kept telling myself, well, this is my one opportunity to be a doctor or to be a pilot. I could always go back to school and be a doctor, which I inevitably did. Um, so that was kind of why, you know, I ended up taking the grad school slot with regular pilot training instead of your own NATO pilot training and kind of charting my path from there. That's cool. Yeah. That's, uh, everybody wants to know what Dooley Squadron? I was in 36. I was proud Pink Panther for Yay. my first two years. <laughs> and then I moved super far up to Squadron 35 uh, <laughs> for my last two. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, uh, we, the, one of the things about 36 we're always proud of is how we would get in trouble doing stunts around campus and leaving pink paw prints. Did you guys do anything like that? No, we did not do pink paw prints. I don't remember that. But we did steal the steel sign from the honor wall. I will not like Peter <laughs> Steel. Stole the, how'd you do we that? Stole the, uh, very carefully. <laughs> Where'd you put it? Um, we, I think we just hit it in the squad and we have a, we have a classic picture of us holding the steel <laughs> sign, which is great, but, um, inevitably they made us put it back. And it's, and it's borrowed. It's not really stolen. <laughs> right, right. It was just borrowed. It was just yeah. borrowed. But we thought it was very ironic. We're going to steal the steel sign. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great one. I love that one. Um, and then uh, 35. So, uh, let me see any summers, any summers of note for you. I mean, I assume that the first year was rough with the physical stuff. Did you get to go to like third lieutenant and any of the other adventures? 
So I, the first six months, so my first semester of freshman year was pretty rough. And then the second semester, you know, like I said, I was determined not to let it hold me back. So I got kind of back on track. Um, at that point, I, you know, most of my summer programs, you know, I was a soaring IP, so I had to do soaring for a couple of the summers. I did jump while I was there. Um, I spent my ops air force time at Langley, which was, um, a great experience, uh, for me, um, getting exposed to like air combat command and, um, got a ride in F-15 and an F-16 at the time. And, um, what else? Oh, I think I taught sports camp one summer too, which was really fun. Um, working with like the high school kids that wanted to go to the academy, but yeah, that's kind of, uh, otherwise it was pretty standard, um, I think cadet experience. And then, uh, did you have any, uh, uh, let's, let's, it doesn't sound like you would have, but any conduct or aptitude or academic problems or was it all pretty straight? No, I left all of that for my future husband. He spent <laughs> multiple hours as like, I think he was like a double centurion. He was captain of the lacrosse team and they were notorious for getting in trouble. And so he, he did, he did all that. He did most of that. I, I didn't spend too much time okay. um, getting in trouble, actually. I think, and not for like, n- not trying because I definitely, I definitely brought trouble my way. <laughs> well, you push, it sounds like you pushed the envelope, but they didn't get you. That's good. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, any, any thoughts of ever quitting? I mean, obviously when you had the bad medical thing, but anything beyond that? For sure. I think like most of us, when you're doing something challenging that you're not quite sure you can get through, you have thoughts of um, quitting and, you know, going to do something else or, you know, the Academy definitely is a unique experience as we all know, where, you know, you don't get a lot of choice in your life and you realize you're signing up for the, a life of that as well. Right. Like somebody else is going to tell you like where you're going to go, when you're going to deploy, where you're going to live. Um, and so that can be challenging for any young person, but I think what helped me stay grounded, um, and away from those thoughts of leaving the Academy were really the great friends I was making, Mm -hmm. um, because you're in that shared experience together. And, you know, I teach, um, a lot of the folks that I work with today. And in fact, I got to work with the basics at the Air Force Academy last summer. And one of the skill sets I taught them was you can train through meditation and through visualization, a vision for why you're doing hard things. And, you know, I could visualize myself you know, flying airplanes someday. I could visualize myself making an impact and serving um, my country and, you know, sharing my story with others. And so that vision was what I would kind of anchor on when things got really tough. Um, Because if I left the academy, I may not be able to see that that vision come to fruition. So, um, yeah, it's a hard skill set, but it's a necessary skill set, I think, for us to kind of stay really like fine, uh, like fine tuned on exactly why we're doing the hard things. Cause we've all done things that you're like, I wasn't sure I would do, I could do that. And you get to the <laughs> other side of it and it feels really good. Right. Yeah. It's like this, you know, you want to celebrate like, Oh my gosh, I didn't think I could do that. And look at what I just did. And so if you can 
build a visualization for what that looks like when you accomplish something, it can be very powerful for sticking through and gritting through hard things. Yeah, I got, I got to admit the, uh, the four years was a really long grind. And it was, <laughs> it wasn't until really close to the end that I thought I was actually going to pull it off. So at that really, <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, it took. It's been echoes of uh, challenges ever since. But uh, no, that's cool. I, I agree that if you, if you can see it in your brain that you're going to get there, keep going. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you went back when like you had to walk three miles in the snow uphill, right? Every single well, day. I, I, <laughs> No, I, I was on. I, 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 this isn't about me, but I was on Act Pro Seven of the sixteen Great Inquiries. <gasps> Were so you I, really? I made the cheerleader squad twice, and I got put on Act Pro twice. So I, I was too dumb to be a cheerleader. It was, it was. I got so humiliated so many times at the academy that by the time I showed up in the Navy, it was, uh, and that was a different. That was a foreign language and a different service altogether. So, I got, a, I got some weird stories, <laughs> but I made it through. <laughs> I graduated thirteenth from the bottom. I, I got. They, they were doing a standing O by the time I walked across the stage. And that's that, where they graduated in order. Oh, you know? that, that's awesome. Well, you know, kudos to you for sticking <laughs> sticking to it. You know well, what I mean? Somebody's got to hold everybody else up, right? <laughs> that's on, on their shoulder. Um, so you graduated and you didn't go right away to UPT. You went off to Penn State. Is that what I saw? Yeah, I went to Penn State um, to get my master's before pilot training. And so that was where kind of my journey into wellness started, um, you know, starting with my biology degree and then going off to grad school with a graduate scholarship from the biology department. I chose to study exercise physiology and kinesiology um, at Penn State. And so first of all, it was amazing to get a real college experience, right? After USAFA oh. <laughs> and be like, oh, this is what real college is like. So that was amazing um, to get to do and get paid as a second lieutenant, right? So it was kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. And I really started to dive into, you know, holistic health and wellness at that moment. Um, you know, from there I went to pilot training and then I flew three back-to-back operational, you know, assignments yeah. in the Air Force, which were exhausting, like anybody would probably say from, you know, right after 9-11. And so, hang on, hang on. you're yeah. rolling past things that are really oh, interesting. Sorry. Where did you do UPT? Vance. I went to Vance. In okay. And then, and then you went to Ramstein, is that right? Was that your first assignment? Yes. Flew C-21s at Ramstein. And for and those that aren't familiar, because I couldn't remember, what exactly is a C-21? <laughs> it's a Learjet. So yeah. it holds... Like about eight passengers and two crew, and I got to fly all over Europe, the Middle East, Africa. It really C twenty one at Ramstein is like one of the best assignments I think in the Air Force. This is like the VIP <laughs> thing, right? It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, and it's a jet, so it doesn't take forever. My goodness. <laughs> what I know deal. it was a great assignment. And by the way, I got to live in Germany and travel Europe. Right. So I mean, that was like my husband and I had a great time over there. And you were there when nine eleven happened, right? I was. I was. I'm, like, was, I'm just curious, what was that like for the people over there? So I remember when, you know, right after 9-11 happened, like our neighbors, our German neighbors just like 
came over to give us hugs. They had tears in their eyes. They were so supportive. Um, you know, the whole community, especially where we were in Germany, right? They, there were a lot of uh, American, there's a large American population because of the bases that were over there. And so we, I felt super supportive. Yeah. Um, we went from flying in our uniforms with a plane that said, you know, uh, U.S. Air Force to <laughs> flying all over Europe in civilian clothing with a plane yep. that just said United States of America, um, you know, shortly after that. So, and, and we went from, you know, a lot of fun, you know, trips to different places in Europe to like dedicated, you know, OIF and, and or OEF first and then OIF and um, Northern Watch was going on right before that, or you know, uh, Northern yeah. Watch, Southern Watch, and Kosovo was just winding down. So, it it was a quite an experience for like a young lieutenant. And then you got a real really good deal going to uh, North Carolina to fly C one thirties. Yes, yes, and just <laughs> an interesting sidebar. My husband and I actually volunteered to go to Korea, okay. and. We wanted to get our short tours done from Ramstein. We're like, we'll go to Korea. We'll do our thing over there. And yeah, personnel was like, no, no, we'll non-vol two other people to Korea and send you guys to Pope. So, you know, it ended up being not ideal, but I will say I still have a soft spot for the C-130. I absolutely loved flying that plane and I wouldn't have traded it for the world. It was fabulous. Yeah, I, I flew one of those on a geography club trip to Brazil. Uh, at the while well, at the academy and at 14 hours of flying. <laughs> <laughs> We're low and slow, low takes, and slow. <laughs> and it was all jump seats, sleeping on the ramp, trying to stay, stay, get, get some shut eye. It was pretty, pretty arduous. <laughs> That's what I loved about the plane in the community. Like it was so like no frills, right? Like you just yeah. ran this plane wherever in the dirt, like <laughs> on, a, on a random strip or on a nice runway, like, you know, you duct tape it back together. Like, it's just very forgiving. Um, and then, then your third flying assignment looks like it was uh, KC-10s? It was, yes. Then I went to the Gucci world from my time in the <laughs> The Gucci <Yeah>. world, all right. <laughs> Traded it in for a tanker. And I really, I did love my time in the KC-10, which is now you know, going to be a legacy aircraft here. I think there's only a few left. Um, Which well, so, makes you feel any better. There were KC-135s when I was in the military. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's crazy, right? Everything I've touched is either in mothballs or museums. So it doesn't, it's a joke when I talk <laughs> about my old timey stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I need to ask the flying question. That is, did you ever have any close calls? Of course. Um, you know, I probably have shut down 10 engines in my career, you know, mainly in the, all in the 130 because we've got four. So shutting down one was somewhat of a regular, <laughs> um, uh, a regular happenstance. Um, you know, I have a couple interesting war stories in all the planes I flew. Um, but one of the most entertaining had to be when I flew, the first, it was the first group of Iraqi army troops that had ever been on an aircraft, you know, and an Air Force aircraft at that. Um, we flew them from Baghdad to Basra on a night that, of course, there were thunderstorms and convective activity. You know, there was some threats, you know, in the AOR. This was probably like 
the heat of like two, 2005 timeframe. And um, so we're, we're doing a combat takeoff. Of course, we get a missile warning and our flares, you know, deploy shortly after takeoff, which then created a situation where we had to turn a little bit closer to the convective activity in the thunderstorms than we, we wanted. We got struck by lightning, right? Like all these things are happening all at the same time. And the um, Iraqi troops in the back, like you can imagine, right? A 60 and two pull, like to get away from whatever the threat was combined with the chaos of like, you know, losing some engine generators, start, you know, having to shut down an engine, like they're in the back lighting up cigarettes. Like my load master's like, pilot, like it's chaos back here. <laughs> um, they're pulling out the emergency passenger oxygen systems, like the, you know, and throwing up inside the masks yeah. of those, which I learned were, are about $6,000 a piece <laughs> after Ooh. that incident. Um, you know, it was just a chaotic night. Everything that could go wrong, like kept going wrong. Um, but it was also a really great example of like my crew coming together, you know, pushing through all the challenges that we faced. I use it as a great example of, right, especially like as the aircraft commander and pilot in, in charge of the plane when all these things are going on, like how do you get the mindset, right, to be successful yeah. when just one thing after another doesn't go your way? How do you train things like optimism and confidence and focus for those situations? Yeah. Um, so how do, you, how do you stay ahead of the uh, the ball? You know, how yes. do you stay ahead of the uh, what's coming next? You got to kind of kind of keep your head going forward too. Yes, absolutely. So quite quite the experience, but um, you know, looking back on it, it definitely you know the, we as human beings want to do challenging things. And so when I think back on the challenging things that I've done, I have learned experiences from them. I have, you know, developed, you know, deeper skill sets to do more hard things in the future. So it looks like about 10 years of flying, 3,000 hours. Is that, is that accurate? Um, roughly, yeah. I mean, across the 20-year career, I probably, you know, I did the, the three initial flying assignments um, and pilot training. So that was about 10 years. And then I did go back and fly. I did some staff work. Um, and then I commanded the operation support squadron at McGuire, which houses the KC-10 formal training unit. So oh. I did a flying assignment as a commander as well. And then, oh, let's see. So yeah, you did the, the staff jobs until you decided to retire. Is that is that kind of how that worked or what happened there? No, my staff jobs were right after. So I did the three back-to-back -back flying assignments. Then I went to school. So I went to Air Command and Staff College. Oh, that's right. And yeah. studied, um, I studied leadership is really kind of what I was focused on. Um, you know, like my thesis that year was really this idea of like, how can we, what, what else can we integrate into leadership so that we can drive culture um, toward performance. And so I started like kind of pondering that at Air Command and Staff College, mostly because I was burnt out and exhausted. And I was like, how can I be a better leader when I go back out into the Air Force and help both my peers and the people I lead not be burnt out like I was, right? Like that was kind of what I was in search of. Then I went to SAS, which is the um, School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. Like so, no. a that's still at Maxwell? 
Yep. Yep. That was at Maxwell as well. So my husband and I were actually the first married couple to attend SAS together. Okay. Um, we happened to stay married afterward too. So that was a good <laughs> thing. <laughs> if you would have asked our three-year-old daughter what her parents do for a living, she would have said, write books or read books and write papers. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm, just, I'm real curious because I, I was an Air Force brat and my dad was an instructor at SOS. So we spent five years in Alabama. Um, what, where did you guys live? We lived in Deer Creek. Oh, we lived, we lived in Prattville. I do not know where Deer Creek is. Oh, so it was like, uh, Bort East Montgomery. Okay. Um, yeah. But I think if I, if anybody is listening that has been to SOS or ACSE recently or Air War College, just for that fact, like they live in Deer Creek. It's kind of like base housing. (laughs) And, and, uh, you, so you're there quite a while. If, if I'm reading this right, you're about four years because you stayed stayed at the Air University to get a PhD, correct? Well, actually, I only did two years at, at Maxwell. And then I, I was selected for the AU PhD program, which there were two options to get your PhD. You could take um, for your SDE, so for your like Air War College year, you could take a year off and write your dissertation that year. Um, or you could do it, write your dissertation on your own time, um, while you were working full time, but you had seven years to complete it from when you graduated SAS. So I did the latter. I chose to write it on my own time. And so while I was on staff in the DC area, I wrote my dissertation in 10 months and I, it was like the year that I did not take fancy vacations. I, you know, went off social media and I would work during the day. And then every night from about, you know, eight o'clock when I'd put my kids to bed till about like 1130 or midnight, I would write and work on my dissertation. And I took leave a couple of times and locked myself in a hotel room and I got it done in 10 months. Just like being back at the zoo with finals. (laughs) No fun and no no breathing. Yeah, wow. That that's yeah, and I can I totally appreciate the idea of getting out of Alabama. So I I, I get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and the thing I tell people that want to get a doctorate is you have to love your topic. Yeah. Right. Like don't pick something that someone else tells you, oh, this would be a great thing to study, you know, because you know, I think, you know, like as your advisor, I want I'm interested in it. Like you as the student that's going to live your life around this work needs to absolutely love what you're, what you're studying and be passionate about finding the answer. And because my, you know, I told you I was curious about how we can get ourselves as human beings better prepared to do hard things and not just do hard things and survive them, but do hard things and thrive through them so we can find joy in our lives. Like that was what I wanted to seek out. And so I knew I needed the solution for myself so then I could help others. And so there was a lot of passion in my dissertation work because I was trying to solve a big problem. And and I thought I read somewhere you did a PhD in burnout avoidance. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you could call it that. Um, really, what I studied was how do you build the most effective human weapon system to execute the military's high stress mission. Wow. So it was about performance and how performance builds resiliency. And really, what I found, and so this is what I speak about, is that 
to prepare yourself for those moments as a human being, you can train three things. You can train your body so that your body can meet the challenges of the situation. You can train your craft, so like your job-specific specialty, and you can train your mind. And up until the point where I was studying and doing the research, I had never been told my entire Air Force career that I could train my mind, like deliberately and intentionally train my mind better so that I could do hard things and I could perform in austere environments and I could face adversity. And so it was eye-opening for me when I did the research and I realized the military has a training gap. We only train body and craft and the way we we train the mind is by repetitively making people do hard things, which no doubt builds some mental resiliency and mental strength, but it's just an incomplete strategy because we know from the research and the science and the evidence-based practices that you can intentionally use different skill sets to train your mind for preparing it and for those environments. And so that led to a TED talk in Albuquerque, right? It did. It did. Well, it led to like when I was a squadron commander, I ran a pilot program where we built a human performance kind of focused initiative. And we, I taught everybody mindfulness, um, you know, how to do mental pushups and train their mind every day. We taught about confidence and focus and trust and risk-taking. And we, we really built like a high performance mindset and kind of won all these awards and, I collected data from the people in my unit and, you know, found that it wasn't just making better performers. It was making better humans. You know, people were connecting with their families better. They were feeling, you know, not only high performing in their work, but high performing in their life. And so I knew I was kind of onto something and I got the opportunity to give a TED talk and share more about my work. And then from there, I was getting close to retirement and I didn't necessarily, I wasn't ready to retire, but, you know, the Air Force was going to separate my husband and I again, and we had lived apart for about six of our 20 years. Oh, and wow. um, it's a lot, especially when you have two small children. Yeah. So I made the decision to retire and then kind of, you know, just every, a lot of people wanted to hire me to help them. Um, like share my research and then help them build a culture that and and their organization around this idea of training the mind. Cool. And then you won an award right about the time you retired. You get the Max Award, right? The which award? The Maxwell. Oh, um, yes. So I was a top ten. Yeah, John I'm Maxwell. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, for leadership um, and those efforts. And, um, yeah, like that was a really cool and really exciting to that their organization kind of recognized the innovative work I was doing, but, you know, in that space and we, I know, um, you're from Seattle, so you'll appreciate this, you know, it was Pete Carroll around the same time was doing very similar innovative things with USC football. And then at the Seattle Seahawks. And Dr. Michael Gervais, who's a high-performance sports psychologist, was also kind of leading this effort about training their training your mind in you know the space of Olympic athletes and Red Bull Stratus projects. And so the three of us, kind of a long story how we met, but we ended up meeting, comparing like our backgrounds and trying to push this idea of training the mind in very high-performing organizations where you know like 
you can imagine me trying to tell Air Force pilots that they needed to meditate and what that probably <laughs> sounded like when I started. So how, um, how did, I'm just curious, how did you meet? I know it's a long story, but how did, how did you guys meet? Well, I was at a mindfulness conference, actually, and so was Mike Gervais at the time. And so I met him, and he has a podcast called Finding Mastery. And so he invited me on as a guest. And so I was um, on his podcast just while I was a squadron commander, sharing kind of like the innovative work we were doing in the space of mindset. And he was the one that said, you need to meet Pete. Like, I think you you two would really hit it off and resonate with your the, your methods in integrating mindfulness in particular into high stress occupations that would normally resist this type of training. And so Pete and I did, like we met and just were very much on the same page with how we integrated it. And the way that I, you know, it's twofold, it's messaging and it's leadership. And he said the same exact thing, that it's messaging with his players and it's the coaches. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you're not going to change culture if you just educate players or you give them the skill sets. You have to educate and have the coaches, right, leading that transformation. And so it was the same thing for me. I said I could teach somebody how to practice mindfulness, but if I message it as mental push-ups, right, we work out our bodies, we work out our minds. Yeah. That message resonates more than saying, hey, let's hold hands and – <laughs> together and think about loving and kind thoughts, right? Like, which is also a way to practice mindfulness. But instead, I was, you know, trying to meet them where they're at, which is where I needed to be met at when I was, you know, a, an operator in that space. So the messaging we really bonded um, around, as well as this idea that I thought we needed to take performance from the medical side of the Air Force and integrate it into the leadership side. Like it's a leader's responsibility to create an environment for performance. It's not a, oh, you're broken, go get fixed so you can perform again by the doctors. It's more, no, we're going to develop a culture of performance, um, which, oh, by the way, builds resilience. And so I think that leads me to the next really somewhat sensitive topic, but you are uh, – doing something for frontline people uh, called the uh, red, white, and blue team, red, white, and blue. And would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. It's I'm on the board of the nonprofit team, red, white, and blue, which is a organization that create, that bonds um, veterans together over a shared passion for wellness and physical fitness. And, you know, part of my goal in being, being on the board for the last three years is we've started really integrating this idea of mental fitness into the concept. Um, you know, back in the day, there were, you know, VFWs that veterans would kind of bond around, right. To kind of, kind of find people that were similar to them. Um, that model obviously is, different for this younger population. And so we've found that we can create that same sense of community and tribe and accomplishment and doing hard things through these physical activities um, and running with the, from running with the flag in races to accomplishing things like, you know, the Grand Canyon in one day and these Eagle expeditions, we do all sorts of things to challenge veterans to come together Um to uh, accomplish hard things and then help them afterwards so they don't do something bad absolutely because uh, there's so we know there's so much 
you know, mental wellness inside of physical activity, mental fitness and community and connection. So that is like our, our mission. And so it's been really amazing to work um, with that team. Yeah. And then I guess last year you, you started up something with the uh, three degrees at the I did. I worked with the three degrees and the basics. Um, it was really interesting because, you know, sometimes if you, like if you just work with the three degrees, especially right after their four degree year, a lot of them are like in that, oh, it's over. Like the hardest part is over, <laughs> like relief phase. And you're kind of like, well, there's just a different challenge in front of you, yeah. right? Like it, it, it's just different. It's still all hard, right? Like, And that's what I tell young people, like my biggest piece of mentorship is I always say, choose your hard, right? Like nothing in life is easy. You have to choose your hard and you have to know why you chose that particular hard, which is why vision setting is so important. Um, so that, you know, you'll stick it out, right? Like you'll yeah. see yourself to the other side of it. So I did teach the three degrees two summers ago, which was great. And I taught them again last, last year, but what I got to do this last year that I think was even more impactful was the the basics did first beast yeah. and on their last day of first beast i had them for 90 minutes and in 90 minutes i gave them four skill sets i taught them how to remain calm i taught them about mindfulness and doing mental push-ups i taught them about confidence and i taught them about um setting that vision um, then, then you sent them to Jack's Valley. <laughs> and then we sent them to Jack's Valley. And actually, it was amazing because the data we collected, everybody was like, second beast was so much better than first beast because now I had yeah. tools, right? Like I had skill sets and I could really understand that stress is a perceived emotion. It's my perception and my brain's calculation as to whether I can meet the demands of the moment I'm in. And if my brain says, oh, hell no, then it's going to stress out and be overwhelmed. But if my brain says, I got this, right? Like you can change your experience. And so then, I taught them how to do that. And then the one phrase that keeps popping up in my head that uh, as I research you is ancient warrior ethos. Yes. So my, my program, I have two programs. One is called Command Your Mindset, which I teach people how to start commanding their mind instead of letting their mind command them. And then the second program is called Warrior's Edge, and it really is about reintegrating today's warfighter with the warfighter of the past, like the one who did train their mind because they understood a disciplined mind, was focused, was able to make split-second decisions, and was also able to do hard things and then reintegrate with their tribe. So that's really what the mission of my work is, is to help today's warfighter reconnect um, in that space so that they can be high performing and also mentally resilient to bounce through the adversity they're going to face. Cool. No, I, I, I think it's all very impressive. And I, I admire you for uh, finding this uh, niche and, and applying your, uh, your academy experience as well as your military experience, as well as your educational experience to uh, doing the great things you're doing. That, that's really neat. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me share a little bit about my story. And then the last question that yeah, you live uh, with your husband because of he is he still on active duty? No, he retired two years ago. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, tell him, tell him uh, I'll probably reach out to him or through you. I may reach out to him to put, hear his side of the story sometime. <laughs> yes, I would. I would love to hear his side of the story too. I do a lot of the talking <laughs> in public forums. So he is also a 98 grad. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, we live now in the, his last assignment was at Hill Air Force Base. So we live in the mountains of Utah. So it's cool. Well, thank you for doing this. I will call you right after this. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you.